please include the worldwide outreach of issues, etc. in your year-end giving. You can make a secure online contribution at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call, 618-223-8385. For a year-end tax-deductible donation of $250 or more, we'll send you our latest book, The Wittenberg Trail, Paths to Lutheranism, and a new recording of 22 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support at the end of 2022. First Amendment rights are especially important when they are under pressure, when we are tempted to compromise those rights because of a crisis or an emergency. That's precisely when we need to double down and say, no, whenever we give up these rights, historically, bad things happen. Bottom line is the world always does the world in a much more compelling fashion than the church does. People should study the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and how it saved its seminary in the early 70s in a conflict that's called Seminex, because it might be one of the real examples of saving an institution that was going in the other direction. It was Luther's letter to the Christians of Frankfurt. They weren't quite certain about their pastor. He said, look, just ask him, what's in your hand? What are you putting in my mouth? And if he can't say the body of Christ, run. Don't stay there. Leave. Nonagenarians in Northern Virginia love listening to issues, etc., while lounging in their lazy boys. Okay, Google Play Lutheran Talk Radio. Streaming Lutheran Talk Radio from TuneIn. It's a word that has fallen out of favor. It really shouldn't be out of favor. It's a biblical word, subordination, but when it's applied to the relationship between a husband and a wife, Christians begin to cringe. And then it gets a little worse when they start to talk about the order of creation. There's no reason to cringe at these terms. They do need to be rightly understood in terms of how Scripture uses them, but there's no need to cringe. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. It'll be part two of our series on marriage enrichment with Pastor David Peterson of Godestine, the Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. David Harsani joins us. He's senior editor of The Federalist. We'll talk about the Cambridge Dictionary's new definitions for man and woman and why they were changed. And then Pastor Ted Geese joins us to review the movie, The Menu. Pastor David Peterson is pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and departmental editor of Godestine's The Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. David, welcome back. Thank you, Todd. Give us a quick recap of what we covered in our previous conversation. We covered why marriage enrichment is needed and why Lutheran parishes really should be doing it, largely based upon this book, Endgame, The Church's Strategic Move to Save Faith and Family in America by John Van Epp and J.P. DeGantz. And the thesis of that book, which, which I agree with, and which I think they demonstrate through statistical data and uh, anecdotal evidence of their own, in their own uh, experience, is that an intentional effort, teaching and programs on the part of churches that is towards cultivating virtue and teaching relationship skills, significantly strengthens faith, enriches the lives of believers, and lowers the divorce rate. So that's basically the point of this, is that we ought to be doing something to try to help people with this very real need. Well, let's pick up where we left off and continue our discussion on what we can do in the parish to emphasize and to teach things like the order of creation, the goodness, the centrality of marriage, and practically build relationship skills. 
So their number seven tip was to ritualize relationship ministry through the calendar year. They write, healthy relationship messaging and content should be peppered throughout a church's calendar. There should be staple relationship content that's offered regularly throughout the year. Uh, Great idea. I don't know how much we need to put it on the calendar, but I think this can be done really by just becoming aware of it, the pastors in particular, and looking for opportunities in the lectionary. So, you know, Malachi 4 was the Old Testament reading in one of the Sundays in Advent, and it talks about turning the hearts of the fathers to the children. John the Baptist prepares the way for the Messiah by restoring families. So there's an opportunity to talk there, right? Ephesians chapter 1 talks about, Epiphany 1 rather, talks about Jesus being subordinate to Mary and to Joseph, right? The name of the Holy Trinity is distinct from the name Yahweh in the Old Testament that's given to Moses in that it's a familial term rather than a term of power, right? Yahweh is about power. That's who God is. No one else is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those aren't just terms of endearment. They're relational terms. So there's lots of opportunities, I think, that are just right there in front of us when we start to become more aware of the order of creation, the goodness of marriage, and so forth. And then, of course, there's the opportunities that come up on Mother's Day, Father's Day, baptisms, the beginning of the school year, weddings, funerals, etc. So I do think that this requires a certain level of concentration and attention. Uh, The pastor in particular should be recognizing this as a topic that has to be taught and that's needed, I think, really no less than the doctrine of justification. I mean, of course, if we die without faith, that's the most devastating thing possible, The second most devastating thing possible is that our families are destroyed. So let's look for opportunities. It's something as simple as compiling a list and then acknowledging wedding anniversaries during Sunday morning, a good idea. Yes, I think it is. At least maybe mention it in the prayers. Just uphold these people that could be mentors for the rest of the congregation and just the goodness of of what they've obtained They suggest a little bit more, you know, a personal note of encouragement from staff or clergy at your church that celebrates specific relationship milestones. But I think you're right just to do something, whether it's just in the prayers or it's on the calendar, but just to acknowledge that these are important events in people's lives and we know it. That's actually tip number nine. Tip number eight is to preach regularly on marriage and relationship health. And they write here, Pastors have their own stories and their own testimony on marriage and relationships. Most have had their own struggles. Bearing authentic witness to those struggles is one of the very best ways for pastors to relate to other couples. There are always ways to take a message on marriage and relate it to those at any stage of relationship life. So again, this is the idea of it being a comprehensive doctrine that affects everybody that we're preaching to in some way and that is important. What I would add to this as just a sort of uh, expansion is that we can't leave everything to sort of substantive marriage ministry events, right? That we need to actually preach about these things. Not everybody's going to come to the marriage seminar or the men's group or whatever it is. And we need to give real practical, concrete advice. We can't leave this in ambiguity and theoretical, right? People need real advice and they are looking to the church rightly to give it to them based on biblical wisdom. So what do I mean? I mean, we need to say things 
like on the whole and for the most part, right? So let's not be completely dogmatic. We recognize their situational realities, but on the whole, for the most part, husbands and wives shouldn't have separate finances. That's a bad idea. They should be united in almost all things, right? If you can't trust one another with money, if you're keeping money from one another, do you really respect and love one another? If you will not sacrifice your own pleasures and freedom that comes from money, are you really committed? So maybe there's some exceptional circumstances. You know, we've got to be careful. I get that. But we also, I think, need to give this real advice that most of the time, it's a bad idea to have separate bank accounts. Or we should say things like husbands and wives should never sacrifice their marriage for the sake of their children. The children don't come first. There's a hierarchy. Healthy families are patriarchal as well, right? There's this whole reality of the order of the order of creation. Consider your place in life according to the Ten Commandments. When God creates the world in six days, the first three days he establishes the places, the second three days he fills them. And in those second three days in the filling, he also distinguishes between kinds and he sets up purposes, right? So the star and the moon aren't just set in place, they're set for purpose, to give light, to set times for the seasons. The plants are given for food to both men and animals. And even men and women on the sixth day are set in some sense distinct from one another and for purpose of helping one another. So we should recognize that what children need is a united father and mother. And we need to say, again, this kind of practical, concrete thing, like maybe your children don't need to be in a sport every single season or go on every single trip that is offered and the like. Maybe they need to do more chores. Maybe you need to let, spend less time on them and more time on one another. Or even uh, something like husbands shouldn't expect their wives to provide for their every emotional need, right? Men need male friends. So if your husband is ignoring you, that's a huge problem. If he's out with his buddies five nights a week, big problem. He's being negligent and he needs to be rebuked and he needs to be home. But at the same time, maybe some wives need to think a little bit about the need that their husbands have for male friends and let their husbands be in a golf league or go hunting with good men who are going to uphold them and encourage them and the like. So we need to get kind of down with it in a very serious way, I think, to recognize that people need this kind of advice, they need this kind of doctrine, and really the church has wisdom to give, and we need to give it. You already mentioned tip number nine. How would you kind of wrap up this advice that we've been gleaning from this working game? I think that the, the most insightful thing for the book, two things for me, first of all, that this has a statistical propensity to work, right? This actually makes a difference in the earthly lives of human beings. Their lives are more satisfying, their lives are more full, and they go to church more. And then it has a spiritual benefit, right? People that get divorced, they don't keep coming to church, that sort of stuff. So there's a real benefit to doing this that we can see. And there's almost no risk no cost involved to just talk about this more and to uphold it. And I think the other thing is to recognize then what I picked up from this book was to recognize that maybe this wasn't necessary in 1940 or in 1840. Maybe when everybody lived in two-parent households and we had role models galore, our teachers were married, our mayor was married, our military commanders were married. We were living in a world where 
there was virtue and there was a recognition of what was right and what was good and what was orderly and what was mature. And so we could learn these things by just living in an orderly world. That's not the case now. I mean, the promiscuity of our world, the libertine atmosphere of our world, the hostility towards goodness, towards marriage, towards women, it's horrible. And it has to be combated. And I think it has to be taken on head on. Divorce rates are not as awful within conservative Christianity as they are in the society at large. But any any number is horrific. And I think the numbers are still, it's something like 35 or 40% of people to get married in the church statistically end up in divorce. And that's too much, right? If we can help our people avoid that pain, if we can help the children of our parish live with their biological fathers until they leave the house, if we can help men and wife fulfill their vocations, they're going to be happier and more satisfied, and they're going to be more open to the gospel because they aren't going to have those kinds of distractions. So everything about this is right. And I think for my own part, I'm repentant that it took me so long to kind of get on board with this. Not that I was ever in any way anti this stuff, but I just didn't do this kind of work in the parish. I was very much focused on the doctrine of justification almost exclusively. This isn't the doctrine of justification. It's sanctification. It's law preaching. It's kind of moral lessons sometimes. It's uh, self-improvement sort of stuff. It has all of that kind of character in it. But again, it's got to be done somewhere. It's not being done in the home. The church has the right material for this and has the authority. It also has the obligation. Pastor David Peterson is our guest. It's part two of our series on marriage enrichment. We will turn to the subject of subordination and the order of creation next. Archbook's Treasury Christmas Collection is the perfect Christmas gift for children, grandchildren, and godchildren ages 5 through 9. This new resource is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040. You can also purchase Archbook's Treasury Christmas Collection at issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for December, Archbook's Treasury Christmas Collection, 1-800-325-3040, or issuesetc.org. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod's life ministry is thousands of people sharing Christ's love and mercy and giving witness to our Lord's creation of life, His design for marriage and the family, and the God-given value of all human life from conception to natural death. Working with many partners, LCMS Life Ministries sponsors human care efforts that meet the needs of body and soul and provides resources and educational events for all ages. To learn more, email lifeministry at lcms.org and visit lcms.org life. Education and edification. You're listening to Issues Etc. Sioux Falls, South Dakota has big city nemities with small town feel, civil freedom, and the natural beauty of its namesake waterfalls. It is also home to Christ Lutheran Church, where the living water, Christ himself, flows. Located near I-90 and I-229, Christ Lutheran offers divine service with Holy Communion each Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Learn more about this confessional liturgical parish at ChristSiouxFalls.org. Christ Lutheran Church, building upon Christ. Is your child struggling at school? Are you thinking about homeschooling? 
Would you like help knowing what to teach and how to teach it? The Simply Classical curriculum from Memoria Press provides an enriching step-by-step classical Christian education for students who have autism, learning or behavioral difficulties, ADHD, and more. You'll find everything you need, including daily lesson plans to guide your way. Learn more at simplyclassical.com. Use LPR23 to save on your order. Simplyclassical.com. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's part two of our series on marriage enrichment with Pastor David Peterson. He's departmental editor of God Estates, the Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. Christmas is 10 days away. There's still plenty of time for you to order the Archbook Treasury Christmas Collection for a child, godchild, or grandchild of yours, ages 5 through 9. You do so by simply calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040. Or you can browse before you buy at our website, issuesetc.org. Archbook's Treasury Christmas Collection, the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for December. David, we turn to a term that for some reason makes Christians nowadays queasy. It's the term subordination. Why are we allergic so often to this term? Because we hear in it, I think, inferiority. And I I like the word subordinate for this reason. We could argue about which word is the best word in English, but I think the word submit, which is a legit translation and can be rightly understood, I think the word submit has too much of a passive nature to it. So if we translate Ephesians 5, for example, right, and particularly the other problem, why we're allergic to it, is because in the Bible it seems to be directed mostly at women, so it seems unequal. So here we have it in Ephesians 5, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. So I don't like that was the New King James translation. That word that's translated there, submit. The problem is, is that the Greek word, hupotasso, is a very kind of specific word. It could be translated submit. It could be translated be subjected to. It could be translated almost as to be ruled over. But it literally means, I mean, the word is made up of two words in Greek, just like subordination in English, that it actually means under orders. And it's a military term. And I think we talked about this when we did the marriage thing a few years ago, but I want to do it again. The point of it here is that this is the language for a battlefield formation. So to be in this order, this tasso in Greek, means that your left hand is holding the shield and your right hand is holding the sword. And your shield is covering the guy to your left. You are kept safe by the guy to your right. If you don't have a guy to your right, you're vulnerable and you're exposed, right? It has to move in concert. It has to move together in order to obtain the objective. And St. Paul uses this word specifically, deliberately, to recognize, again, the order of creation, that husbands and wives have been set into order for purpose, right? And that subordination has nothing to do with superiority or inferiority. It's not a term of passivity. It's a term of, again, being arranged together for a specific purpose, the mission of getting the family across the finish line, right? So that husband and wife die in the faith, and so do their children and their grandchildren and the like. So subordination, why is it so kind of painful and difficult 
it's caught up in the kind of male-female chafing that we suffer ever since the fall. And some of that chafing has been exasperated by abuse, that men have abused women because they can, because they're stronger, and they have taken authority instead as a God-given duty, whereby they would serve those who are subordinate to them. They've used it as a claim to power and privilege and the like. So, so all of those things get caught up in it, but that doesn't mean that we throw it away, right? So yeah, it's subject to abuse. Yes, it's difficult because no one likes to be under authority, and it's often confused in this world, and the people in authority over us are sinners and don't carry it out perfectly, but that doesn't mean they're not in authority over us. So it's a biblical reality that we have to learn for our own good and for the good of our children to recognize and learn how to live within it. So what we want to do is we want to understand what it really is and what God is actually set up and established. And I think perhaps the thing that is most missing when it comes to this term is to not recognize that it's actually a leadership term. And that's the other reason I like it in English is subordination instead of submit, because I don't think submits ever means lead. But just think about this for a second experientially, right? We all know this, I think, at some deep level and have probably talked about it in various ways and places that mothers, that wives lead the home, right? I suppose maybe some of us, but most of us, I would expect, have vivid and fond memories of our mothers being a real force of nature, taking care of business, taking care of the children, taking care of finances, doing all sorts of things. And of course, our wives as well. So it's not as though this is a passive thing that they're being called to, to be subordinate to their husbands as to the Lord. And there's lots to go on with that. And we're going to talk a lot the next time about remonstrance and the duty to actually rebuke those in authority. But the whole subordination thing anyway has to be done. So the other passage that's really kind of key here, I think, because it's hard to hear, is 1 Timothy, when St. Paul says, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Again, I'd translate that subordination, right? That she's going to learn in silence. She's going to listen to the one authority over her. But that sounds sort of horrible and sort of demeaning, but there's a context there. And in the first place, I just like to always point out that notice it says, let a woman learn, right? There's nobody is doubting in any way, certainly not St. Paul, that women have the capacity to learn and in fact are called to learn, to be fully involved in the word and to be also then articulate in it. The other thing that I think is helpful is if we contrast the word that's translated submit, or I'm saying subordination, with the word obedience. And I learned this from Tom Winger, his uh, Ephesians commentary in the Concordia commentary series is certainly one of the best commentaries in that series. It's really outstanding. In the very next chapter in Ephesians 6, so right after Paul says, wives, subordinate to your own husbands, he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then a few verses later, he says, bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ. And it's nice here that the New King James, and I think all the translations, recognize that distinction. So the word obey, children and servants are also subordinates, 
They have people over in authority over them, parents and masters, that they are called upon to obey. But that is a distinct word from the word subordinate. Mm. Wives, they're all subordinates, and there's parallels between being a child, being a servant, and being a wife. But the distinction is that there's something else going on with the wife, that it's a higher position, and again, it's a leadership position. Now, one other thing on that whole deal that I think also we just have to remember, and that is that every single one of us on this side of glory is subordinated to other people. When we talk about the subordination of wives to their husbands and how they're supposed to carry that out and how it's difficult and whatever we're talking about, wives are simply the subordinate par excellence. They're not in a unique position. All Christians are under authority, right? We're all under the authority of Christ. We're all under the authority of governing officials. We're all under the authority of fathers and of pastors and of bishops and of police officers and on and on it goes. So none of us get out of this. I I always like to point out that when in Genesis chapter three, when God is explaining the consequences of the fall, if we pair that out, all of that is universal, right? Women don't have green thumbs in a way that men don't. So thorns and thistles come out of the ground for them also. They also have to eat bread by the sweat of their brows and so forth. And then your desire shall be for your husband. That also applies to men. That's not a particular feminine curse. It's the reality of all the sons and daughters of Eve. And it doesn't mean sexual desire. The desire for your husband means your desire for his office, that you are going to chafe under authority now because the flesh is weak and original sin has corrupted you and you don't like to be told what to do. And it's particularly difficult to be told what to do by imperfect people. And of course, we're always subordinated to imperfect people, to sinners, that both they can make foolish mistakes and they can also make selfish mistakes. So that subordination is painful and difficult, but necessary. So it's a leadership term, though, also because, right, it implies that you also then have subordinates under you. So again, if you think of the sort of par excellence, subordinate, we're talking about the wife, the wife definitely has authority over the children, right? As well as a duty to her husband. So she's working both ends of this thing. That's the normal case, not just for women, but for all of us. So you had mentioned the order of creation there a moment ago, and I'd like you just to explain that as kind of a technical theological term. What we're talking about here, the order of creation means that God did created everything in a particular order and for a particular purpose. So he set us not just into offices, husband, wife, father, mother, so forth, or even sun, moon, stars. He set us into these offices and into these places for a purpose to serve one another. So the order of creation really is like the ultimate anti-feminism doctrine. That is to say that feminism pretends to be about being fair, right? That everybody should make the same pay for the same work. But feminism is not really about that. It cares about that a little bit, but that's not its point. The point of feminism is that you should not be defined by other people and that everybody should be an individual and should be self-actualized and find his own fulfillment and shouldn't be dragged down by other people. And that's, of course, 
Historically, it looks like women get the worst end of that deal because they have to change their last names when they marry husbands because they're called Mrs. Whatever, all this kind of stuff. But the reality is in the order of creation, God sets all of us into families and there's always duties and responsibilities. None of us is meant to live for himself. The kind of, I'm going to live for my own self-actualization and find my own path thing is really a demonic idea. There can be a, a sense in which people might do some of that. But the order of creation is to be set into order, into offices for service to other people. So the sun and the moon give light to the earth, and they also help to mark seasons, right? Eve is called to be a helper, not a servant or a worker. They look almost the same in Hebrew, those two words, but that's really significant. The old King James, of course, translated that help meet. I don't know if that's a helpful word. The word literally means comforter. So it's kind of a Holy Spirit word. And remember, it wasn't good when Adam was alone. It's not good. Creation isn't finished while Adam is there alone. He can't exist alone. He's subhuman and not yet what he will be because he isn't living for someone else. I sometimes talk about the sort of cross that comes from being celibate or being single. Of course, St. Paul also says it's a, it can be a blessing because you can devote yourself to others and to particular work and so forth. So God be praised for that. But blessings are often curses at the same time, right? So it's a curse because you don't have the companionship, you don't have the comfort. But I also sometimes then will talk about the curse of being barren, and because that's a similar kind of reality, because husband and wife become one flesh, they are in a sense almost an individual, and now they need again someone else to love. I think one of the kind of gross things about the modern promiscuity of our society is this false idea that somehow homosexuality has to do with love, because homosexuality has nothing to do with love. Homosexuality is defined by the physical act, the ab abomination there that has to do with preferring that which is the same as you. Whereas heterosexual <laughs> means to have an affection or an attraction to someone different than you, right? You love the other. But men can love men without the abomination. Homosexuality is the abomination. It's not love. But it's also this, I want things like me. I can't love someone different than me or someone other than me. So all of this order of creation thing, setting Adam and Eve in relationship to one another and the setup there already, the expectation of children, means that they're going to serve other people. I love this line that Rolf Preuss used years ago, which I've used a bunch. God gives us children so they'll break our stuff to keep us from idolatry, right? Children force you to move out of yourself. I see this as a parish pastor all the time when it comes to grief, right? A two or a three-year-old has no time for your grief because they're caught up in their own world and they need help and they need your assistance and they need things from you. It seems to me anecdotally that nothing is so good or so helpful for a person who's grieving as to hold a baby that needs attention. And this is good for husbands and wives. Couples that don't have children need to find some way to be involved in the lives of children so that they can also fulfill the command to raise up children in the fear and the nurture of the Lord. If they don't, they're stilted. They're not the fullness of humanity. Those who are called to be celibate in the same way, they have to find some way to fulfill this because 
We just weren't meant to live alone. So that's that was a long answer. The order of creation has to do with being set in order for the service of others and giving yourself to another. You're not a human being, not a real human being, a full human being, if you're not giving yourself to other people. Pastor David Peterson is our guest. It's part two of our series on marriage enrichment. We'll talk about an example of a sergeant major next. Please include the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. in your year-end giving. You can make a secure online contribution at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call, 618-223-8385. For a year-end tax-deductible donation of $250 or more, we'll send you our latest book, The Wittenberg Trail, Paths to Lutheranism, and a new recording of 22 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support at the end of 2022. What does it mean to be a man? The December issue of The Lutheran Witness takes up the question of anthropology. And for us as Lutherans, understanding what man is and who man is begins first and foremost with understanding who Jesus is and what he has done, how he is the perfect man. Pick up your copy today by visiting cph.org slash witness or visit our website witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Are you ready for war? Are you ready to stand firm in Christ against all odds? Listen to chapel services live weekday mornings from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana at 9 Central, 10 Eastern, 8 Mountain, and 7 Pacific at issuesetc.org. Yes, yes, you are ready because God has made you ready. Your hope is built on Jesus Christ and His righteousness. For your next family vacation, consider Our Beach House, a charming three-bedroom vacation rental on beautiful Siesta Key. Just off Sarasota, Florida, Siesta Key Beach, consistently voted America's best, is just 100 steps away. Whether you're watching the sunset over the Gulf of Mexico or frolicking in the warm surf, you and your family will fall in love with Siesta Key. Check us out at SiestaKeyRentalGenie.com or call Virginia at 941-266-1858. Your lifeline to the Lutheran worldview. You're listening to Issues Etc. You may be one of those pastors who need to be refreshed and refueled because of your parish ministry. Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Charles Gieschen. Concordia Theological Seminary has a wonderful program, not only in continuing education during the summer, but in an advanced study program called the Doctor of Ministry. And it's a very practical program because it focuses on congregational ministry. It incorporates biblical theology with the ministry of the congregation. It's also very accessible for pastors, and it's also affordable. You can major in pastoral care and leadership, teaching and preaching, or mission and culture. And we pray that pastors will take advantage of this program. Learn more about the Doctorate of Ministry program at ctsfw.edu or by calling 1-800-481-2155, Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana.
talking with Pastor David Peterson of God Instincts, the Journal of Lutheran Liturgy, in part two of our series on marriage enrichment about subordination and the order of creation. So, David, you wanted to use an example of a sergeant major. What is that? Yeah, so think about a sergeant major and a colonel at a brigade level, right? So the sergeant major is the highest ranking enlisted man, and the colonel is the highest ranking officer. But nobody, nobody is ever going to say that the sergeant major is inferior to the colonel, right? He's subordinate to the colonel. He's under the colonel's authority, right? But he's not inferior, and he's not passive, and he's not... See, here I wouldn't use the word submissive, right? I don't think sergeant majors would go for that. I've known some sergeant majors. They tend to be pretty salty. They're not weak. They're not wimpy. They're not stupid. They're deeply experienced and competent, right? Takes a lot to get to that level. But they are subordinate. They're not the commander. So the sergeant major has to deal with the colonel, and he has to carry out the colonel's orders. So now imagine a situation where if everything goes perfectly, the colonel says, we're going to take that hill, and the sergeant major says, good idea, I'll organize it, I'll carry it out, right? And off they go, and they take the hill. But sometimes the colonel says, we're going to take that hill, and the sergeant major believes it's a mistake, right? That's a bad idea, sir. We can't take that hill. We're going to get slaughtered and there's no real purpose in it, right? So he has to then rebuke in some way. This is this remonstrance idea, the colonel. He has to warn him and he warns him on the basis of the unit's mission, right? The sergeant major cares about the subordinates because they're also his subordinates. He doesn't want to waste their lives and he cares about the mission, right? So if the colonel says, take that hill, the sergeant major might have some questions, right? Why are we taking that hill? Is this the right time to take it? Is this the way to take it? Is it necessary? Is there another way, right? All of that to help the colonel make good decisions. In the end, though, if it's not illegal, if it's not an illegal order, the colonel's not asking for something immoral. Ultimately, the sergeant major might have to carry it out even if he thinks it's foolish because he has to obey, right? So I said subordination is different than obedience, and that's true. It's not blind obedience, but subordination does mean obedience. So the sergeant major, if he cannot convince the colonel, and there's no kind of immoral problem with this, ultimately he obeys and he suffers the consequences of it. He says, well, I think we're going to get slaughtered, but Maybe the colonel knows something I don't know, right? So he has humility in this. And he says, I'm going to carry this out because I'm a soldier and that's what I do. And I obey orders. I wasn't trying to get out of this because I'm a coward, but I also know I'm not all wise. So I'm going to do my best and maybe I'll be surprised. And then the third pot. So sometimes you have to carry out orders that are foolish or seem foolish to you. And you have to sort of hope and expect that maybe they're not foolish, And then the final case, of course, with that would be the colonel doesn't say take the hill. He says, you know, line up the privates and shoot them because whatever, right? So, and the sergeant major is going to say, no, we don't kill privates, right? And we don't kill privates because that's not our mission and we actually care about our subordinates. So I'm not going to carry out an illegal order. I obey God rather than men, right? So all of that kind of relationship interest sort of goes on. 
But now go at it from the point of view of the colonel, right? So that's what the sergeant major lives with. And in that, he's not supposed to ever be insubordinate. He's not supposed to be disrespectful. He's not supposed to be haughty or proud, even if he's smarter than the colonel, even if he has more experience, right? He has to be under authority. But now think about it from the colonel's point of view, right? This would be a disaster of a colonel, and we all know it, if he doesn't seek the advice and the counsel of the sergeant major, and if he doesn't desire to present a united front to the whole unit, right? So the reality is they work together and they have different roles to some degree, but they have the same mission. And that's the way the sort of leadership thing kind of works. Again, in terms of women and wives in particular, there's probably no more beautiful description of a godly woman in all of Holy Scripture than Proverbs 31. And we, I won't read the whole thing, but but just think about this at the end of it, how she's described. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. So she opens her mouth with wisdom. A godly woman must study and know the Holy Scripture and must be able to talk about Holy Scripture because her tongue is the law of kindness. She's instructing other people, her children, and also, in some sense, she instructs her husband through her questions, through her gentle proddings, and the like. Proverbs 31 does not describe a passive, inferior woman without the capacity of wisdom or learning or weakness. So, I think that those kinds of things really help us better understand what we're being called to and see the real dignity and goodness of this. I talked about at the beginning of this, right, we've seen our own mothers and wives be incredibly effective, godly leaders in our homes, in our churches, and in in many places, and God be praised for that. But also you could think about associate pastors, right? And all sorts of kind of sergeant majors and all sorts of people that are, you know, not the chief executive necessarily, but are doing really significant work and God be praised for that. So how would you then read Ephesians 5, that passage you mentioned at the outset, given this proper understanding of subordination? Right. So wives, subordinate to your own husbands as to the Lord means to recognize that God has called you to a particular husband, right? So you are to actually recognize God has given you this person, even though he's fallible, even though he has weaknesses and character flaws and the whole bit, and to move forward in the world against the devil in a battlefield formation, right? To carry out this mission together. And the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. This is a great promise that is a mystery. He's the head of the wife because this is the orderly thing and the way that God has designed this to work. There is a promise that it's going to work. It may not look like it's working. It may not seem like the most efficient way to go about this thing. But there is a cooperation here and a goodness that God promises to bless as Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. So I find this passage of enormous comfort that things actually fit. 
that again, this idea of order as opposed to disorder, right? The devil likes disorder, chaos. He's the man of lawlessness. And God is the God of order, and he sets us for purpose. I wanted you here at the end to uh, return to something that you said last time that I think is a really great takeaway from this, and that is that in so many cases, the operative commandment for marriage is the Eighth Commandment, the one against bearing false witness. How is that again? Well, mainly marriage is a conversation. And so mainly the way that we hurt each other is with words or with thoughts and assigning bad motives and, and so forth. And if you think about it, like almost all of the kind of marriage counseling stuff, all of the marriage enrichment stuff, all of the books, like five love languages and all that, it's almost all completely about communication, right? Where marriage goes wrong is when we're not communicating well. And from a theological point of view, when we're not communicating well, the problem isn't simply that we're not being clear. The problem is we're being wicked. We're not really putting the best construction on the other person's words. We're not assigning the best motives to the other person. We're not seeking to be kind in everything that we say and supportive and so forth. So that's where marriages break down is with communication. And and from a moral point of view, it's always an eighth commandment violation. At the same time, I think Luther's explanation, the positive explanation, right, to, to defend him, speak well of him, and explain everything in the kindest way, this is completely the way forward in holy marriage. The speaking well of is, is an astounding kind of thing. I often talk about how there's a temptation when you go to work depending on the culture, if you go to work and the guys stand around the coffee pot in the morning and they're all divorced, they all like to tell stories about how awful their wives are. It's really tempting for our fallen flesh to want to join in, right? And to say to, to, to be one of the guys and to say something bad about our wives. So that's like a temptation that we have to resist and speak well. Or like, you know, your own mother comes over, right? And wants to say something unkind about your wife, about her housekeeping or whatever. And it's really hard to stand up to your own mother, but you need to speak well of your wife and defend her, right? So there's just lots of these kinds of instances where we're so tempted to not do the right thing and doing the right thing, right? Speaking up, speaking well of your wife and defending her to your own mother, that does a lot of goodness for her and for your relationship, right? So there's just almost countless examples of that. When you start thinking about it that way, it's like it feels like almost everything slides into it, within marriage, I mean. Pastor David Peterson is pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He's departmental editor of Gottesdienst, the Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. David, thank you very much. Thank you, Todd. Dr. Michael New will be with us on the other side of the break. We're going to discuss a new study on state-level pro-life laws and poor public health outcomes. Is the research credible? This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we move farther along in St. Luke with blessings and woes. Love of enemies, lives of mercy, of logs and specks, and built on the rock. 
Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for the Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Our church loves and is grateful for those that serve our country. Operation Barnabas, part of Ministry to the Armed Forces, equips you to reach out to veterans in your community to bring Christ to those that served. Call Ministry to the Armed Forces at 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Thank you for your service. Thank you. God bless our military. Declaring to you the whole counsel of God, you're listening to Issues Etc. Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Did you know that Luther Academy has been providing continuing education for confessional Lutheran pastors and laypeople worldwide for more than 20 years? Luther Academy publishes Logia, the confessional Lutheran dogmatic series, and Luther Digest. Find out more about Luther Academy and sign up to receive their free email newsletter at lutheracademy.com. Lutheracademy.com and like them on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Luther Academy.